God can so love me and also love that person who disagrees with me. How does that work? <laughs> How can he think that I, I, I matter and think that that guy matters when I know he doesn't? <laughs> you know, there's an answer to that. It's very simple. God is holy. God is holy. That is, he is completely other. That he is above all of the pettiness that so often plagues our lives. And so he can look at two people in disunity. You know, the Bible tells us how can two walk together unless they agree? Well, so often we find ourselves in places of disagreement. We don't see eye to eye. And yet the Lord loves us both because he's above that. The only way he gets drawn into it is putting on flesh and dying on the cross. See, that's what he did to bring us together, to draw people together. And I was talking with someone actually on, I don't even know what day it was, this past week, but about that very thing that God just, he brings together. And, and in, in our church fellowship, we, we know that there's some just very, we, we come from some very different backgrounds and different approaches to the Lord and yet he draws us together. How does he do that? Jesus. We're here this morning not because we have a shared tradition, but because we share a love for Jesus Christ. Amen? And, and we love his word. And we just want to know the truth. And, and so all that stuff behind us, good and bad, all the stuff that we've carried or we've been raised in or the things that, that travel along, the things that so often cause disagreement, guess what? It doesn't matter. Because what matters is Jesus Christ. And as we love him, it's amazing. We just start to love each other more. That was free. You didn't have to pay for that this morning. We're gonna be in Leviticus chapter 11, and I invite you to open up your Bibles there, Leviticus 11. We covered chapters 11 and 12 on Wednesday night, went through that. Uh, chapter 11 literally gives a menu, so I think the timing's good for this week coming up to Thanksgiving. A menu of clean and, and unclean animals. Before I go any further on that, and, I, and we're going to trail back into the end of 11 here to do kind of a word study this morning. A little different. We're not doing a verse by verse. And we're not doing, um, you know, a, a passage. We're actually going to do four different passages. We'll start in Leviticus, and we're going to move through the Bible on into the New Testament uh, as quickly as I can and try to understand an idea that the Lord presents, a concept that I think is incredibly important, very biblical, you find it on so many of the pages of Scripture, and yet maybe you've never, I, I've never sat down and really just thought about this concept. But let's, let's look at Leviticus 11.44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. By the way, consecrate is to be holy, be sanctified, to be made holy. So make yourselves holy and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean, with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law, and he's summing up now chapter 11. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth. To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean. And between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for Leviticus 11. 
Thank you for the words of the pages of the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that you would carry us through this morning and give us understanding and illumination. And so often we pray, Lord, for revelation for the things written here. I pray this will touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a slight buzz, and it may just be a guitar or something, but just letting you know, John. I'll try to ignore, but I'm a little ADD. Happy Thanksgiving. Want to get that out? Go ahead and say that. Let's talk turkey for a minute. What do you call a turkey that comes back to haunt you after Thanksgiving? A poultry geist. You can use that one. A poultry geist. I thought that was beautiful. Love that. <laughs> so Leviticus 11, again, it gives us a literal menu of clean animals, kosher food that makes the list called the kashrut. The kashrut is the Jewish list of clean and unclean foods. There's actually a place you can go to study and look into this called kashrut.com. No kidding, they break it all down for you, tell you what's clean, what's unclean. They tell you about products that are out there that say they're clean, but they're really not. And it, it's an interesting place. It's, it's from the Jewish perspective, obviously, of what is kosher and what is not kosher. But Leviticus 11 is very simply food, meat that is edible for the Israelites versus that which God says is inedible, that which is clean for them to eat, that which is unclean for them to eat. And we studied that through, fascinating study. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear Wednesday night, to go back and listen through because it's more than just food that God is talking about here. Even as he sums up at the end of it, we discover it's far more than just food. But before we get there, you might wonder, and we kind of raised the issue on Wednesday night, do turkeys make the list of clean animals? Or are they just foul? <laughs> if you look back at verse 13, it says, these moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, and the ostrich, and the owl, and the seagull, and the hawk in its kind, and the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork, and the heron in its kinds, and the hopo, and the bat, which if we paid attention to that last one, we might not have coronavirus. Now, I realize all of these laws are a real learning carve for us. <laughs> See what kind of mood I'm in today? And as we study these things, we don't want to wing it. So let me give you some sage advice. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm doing my best. I really am. Turkey's not on the list. Did you notice that? Turkey is not on the list of unclean birds because all these unclean flying creatures, as we pointed out midweek, are carnivores. They're all birds of prey, every single one of them. They're unclean flying creatures, and, and we made the point that, man, they eat meat, and, and flesh profits nothing. So don't eat the meat-eating birds, right? Even the bats, bats are insectivores, so they, they like to eat insects, so even that is, is out. But, but turkey, is, it's not on the list, so you think, well, that's fine, right? Depends on the rabbi you talk to. Depends on where you search. There are those who say, yeah, turkey's fine, enjoy, happy Thanksgiving. There are those who say, oh, no, no, no. You cannot eat 
the turkey. You see, turkeys are neither carnivores nor herbivores, they're omnivores. They eat both meat and grains. Uh, they tend to forage, they're big time foragers for seeds and grains and roots and bulbs and, and nuts and berries, that kind of thing. But turkeys will also scarf down insects, small reptiles, lizards, snakes. There's really no telling what you're getting on your Thanksgiving table. And on top of that, they will wash it all down with sand and dirt for grit to help the digestion. Doesn't sound super clean to me. Yet as it turns out, you got to think I'm nuts for even looking this stuff up. But according to the National Turkey Foundation, yes, there is one, Israel leads the world in turkey consumption. which tells you what a people does when they're told not to do something, right? So we're back to that question, are turkeys clean animals or not? And here's what I want you to get. It really depends on what you mean by the word clean, clean, clean. Have you thought about the word clean, especially as it's described and approached in the scriptures? It's a big deal to God. This whole idea of being clean. So that's our word study. We're going to look through it and think about this. We're in, again, the second part of Leviticus. The first part was chapters 1 through 10, where we, we looked at the officiation of all the sacrifices and the work of the priest. Well, now chapters 11 through 16 is a section we call purification. And everything dealt with in this section is all about the people being pure, being made pure, maintaining purification. And you may remember the key word of the whole entire book is holiness. Be holy for I am holy, the Lord says again and again. So while you're not gonna find the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness in the Bible, being clean is very synonymous with being holy. To be clean is to be holy. And in fact, it's one of the ways that God helps us to comprehend holiness. You've heard the word, if you've gone to church at all, you've heard the word holy, holiness, many, many times over the years. Have you ever stopped to thought about what does it really mean? I know you've got the definition that's been thrown out there. I heard years and years ago, set apart. Okay, so I'm set apart. Give me more. I want to understand holiness, especially because God says, I want you to be holy. So set apart, Lord? Yes. What does that look like? How, how do I walk in that? God gives us understanding, taking us very down to the very simple element of being clean. I want you to be clean. The word holy in the Hebrew is kadosh. Kadosh. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see it a lot. In the New Testament, you'll see it a lot. It's the, it's the Greek word hagioi from which comes hagios, where we get the word saints, the hagios, the saints, the holy ones. Hagioi is holy in the Greek, gadosh, holy in the Hebrew. And again, both words, uh, synonymous words, parallel words mean sacred. They mean set apart, separate, and specifically dedicated to God. So to be holy is to be dedicated to God. But if you're dedicated to God, you must be clean. And dedication to God makes you clean. Clean, holy. The word clean in the Hebrew that we don't talk about a lot is tahor, T-A-H-O-R. If you're taking notes, tahor, that's the Hebrew word for clean. It means pure. 
flawless. It, it speaks of physical purity, it speaks of moral purity, it speaks of spiritual flawlessness. First time we see the word is in Genesis chapter seven, verse one, where the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal. Tahor, first time the word clean is used in the Bible. Now, Noah clearly had some comprehension, some understanding of what the clean animals were. So at some point prior to that, the Lord had expressed what clean meant. I think you could go all the way back to Cain and Abel, and Abel knew what clean meant when he offered up his sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, to the Lord. So early on, as God interacted with people differently in that dispensation than he does now or than he even did in the time of the patriarchs and the, the Hebrew scriptures, early on, he, he spoke, he taught, there are many things that were understood so he comes to Noah and says, one of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. And also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and a female to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. So Noah took clean and unclean animals on the ark. Unclean animals doesn't mean bad. It just means God is making a distinction. And we talked about that midweek. He's distinguishing He's using even the animal kingdom and our relationship with animals to help us understand he wants us to make a distinction between clean things and unclean things. But in our text, again, specifically verses 44 and 45, God begins to now explain what cleanness really means as he divides out these animals. David later on is gonna say, Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The Lord would later confirm through Isaiah the prophet, wash yourselves, Isaiah 1, 16. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There's some pictures of cleanliness right there. Just because being clean doesn't mean that you're just a monk cloistered away from the world. It means how you interact with the world, those you care for, those you consider needy of your help. To be clean, it affects everything about us. When you come to the New Testament, the word clean is very interesting to me. It's katharos or katharzomai. It's where we get our word catharsis. To be clean is to be is to come through, I guess, the process of catharsis. It's to purify. It's to be purged completely from all stain and dirt. Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, <laughs> ceremonially making Jesus unclean. As far as the Jews would be considered, he just did an unclean thing, but he touched him. He said, I am willing, be cleansed. See, only the perfectly clean can make the unclean clean. And for Jesus to touch the leper did not make Jesus unclean. Why? Because Jesus is already pure and perfect and clean. Can you imagine how it felt for that leper to be touched? 
perhaps for the first time in his life, or at least in, since he contracted that horrible disease that made him an untouchable. And Jesus said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Be clean. Now, as we parallel being clean and being holy, there is a sense that the world does not understand. And honestly, I haven't heard talked a lot about in the church. And that is the cathartic freedom of holiness. That to be holy is to be free. There is a catharsis that takes place. It is such a lie in this world that getting down and dirty is liberating. That a wild night out is the same thing as living free. That is complete deception. In truth, holiness is cathartic. Holiness is freedom. Holiness is not being captive to our sin, confined to the fallout of our rebellion, tied to an unholy life, entrapped as it were. It's the opposite of what people think. No, being holy, being clean, there's freedom. There is true liberty. And we even use phrases like a clean bill of health. It was a clean sweep. You got to come clean. Clean as a whistle, wiping the slate clean. A clean conscience, squeaky clean. These are all good things. Get the dirt off and sparkle and shine and be clean. And in view of Thanksgiving, clean your plate. <laughs> or something my, li my wife likes to hear at the end of the day, the dishes are clean. Revelation 19, verse 8 says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. That's the bride, the church. Bride of Christ will be seen as clean. And that clean, bright, fine linen, the Bible says, is the righteous acts of the saints. Not their freedom to run wild in the dirty world, but to be clean. Righteousness, cleanliness, holiness, these things are not restrictive. They are not overbearing. They are joyfully, cathartically liberating. Now, the word for clean, used in all of its forms in the, in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is used 204 times. And according to the theological workbook of the Old Testament, it's used, quote, almost exclusively for ritual or moral purity. So when you see the word clean in the Hebrew Scriptures, God is referencing this moral purity that, that he's called us to, holiness. There is one notable exception, and you want, you're probably going to want to jot this down. This is an obscure verse, but it is absolutely fascinating in what it, I think, portends, what it means under the surface. It comes out of the book of Job. The young man Elihu. If you recall studying Job, if you've ever studied Job, you know he has three friends. They're, both, they're, they're all three kind of boneheads as they approach and they attack Job for being in, a, in his horrible situation. It's the only way they can figure out to help him is they attack him. Ever had that happen? <laughs> Someone comes along, hey, I'm, I'm here to encourage you and build you up, and they just tear you down. Well, thanks for that. Well, that's Job's first three friends. But there's a fourth young man who stays silent through the whole book until about chapter 34, or somewhere in there, in the 30s. And, and Elihu is his name, Elihu, which means he is my God. And Elihu begins to speak and to, to defend God. He's the only one in the story who defends the Lord. 
And Elihu says, listen closely, Job 37, 21. Now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them. Let me read it again. Now men do not see the light which is bright in the skies, but the wind has passed and cleared them or literally cleaned them out. The word tahor, te-tahor right there. Cleaned. The wind has cleaned the cloudiness and the haziness and the unclear gray dullness of the skies. The wind, the wind, the ruach. Which you know if you're a Bible student that ruach in the Hebrew means wind, breath, or spirit. What a picture. That the, the sky is cloudy. See, this is a picture of holiness. My vision's dull. It, it's hazy and unclear. I, I, can't, I can't see. The bright light's there. Sun's shining. I just can't see it. Welcome to the Northwest. Because of the clouds and the rain and the dullness, right? We can't see through it. It's there. But I can't see it until what? Until the Spirit clears it away. The Spirit comes and all of a sudden I can see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see what? The light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the wind blows, the spirit moves, the skies clear. Why? So that we might receive the gospel so that we might have the glory of Christ, be aware of the glory of Christ. And again, why? So that we ultimately will see the brightness of his coming. That as he returns, we will not be among those going, huh, what? But we will see him. We will see him as he is, John tells us. Habakkuk chapter three, verse three, says his splendor covers the heavens. And the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand. And there is the hiding of his power. And the world, the entire world will see him. The skies will finally clear. But we get to see him first. In fact, we can see him right now by faith as the spirit clears the skies and the dull grayness. Can you see him? Is his coming visible to you or is it still cloudy? And you might say, well, I, I want to see it. I'd love to see it. How can I? Got to be clean. You got to be clean. Even as the spirit cleans out the skies, that he would clean out our hearts. Psalm 24, verse three, David nails it. He says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. I gotta get clean hands. Yeah, I don't know about you, but every time I turn around, it seems like my hands are dirty. Wash your hands. You know, when this whole hand washing thing came out, I, I don't know if you saw this. I love it. I actually have it on my iPhone. Someone took, I wanna hold her hand the Beatles, and turn it into, I want to wash my hands. And it's the whole song. It's fantastic. Yeah, look that up. I, I want to wash my hands. 
And we're told even in this pandemic, wash your hands, keep washing your hands, wash them a lot. And I've learned to wash my hands in a very effective way. And yet you look down and you go, oh, gotta wash. And David says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, I would love to have clean hands and a pure heart. But I look around at y'all and I see myself in the mirror this morning. I say, hold on a second, clean hands and a pure heart? I seem to recall the apostle Paul, Romans 3.10, saying, as it is written, Psalm 14.3, there is none righteous, no, not one. And yet the only way to approach God is clean hands and a pure heart heart. Upside is at least we know God's intention for us. He desires for us to be clean. He wants a people that are holy. Look back at verse 44 one more time, Leviticus eleven forty-four. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. How interesting. In Leviticus 4, there are four different kinds of creatures talked about. Land animals, birds that fly in the skies, those creatures that swim in the waters, and finally, swarming things. Everything from mice to crocodiles, those things that swarm. And it's last on the list probably because of the four things. It's kind of the lower form, you know. Some have even compared the swarming things to a remembrance of the serpent who went on his belly, swarming things. Interesting that in verse 44, he says, I am the Lord your God. And he says, don't make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things from the heights of his holiness to the depths of the swarming things on the earth, all in one verse. And Andrew Bonner says, nothing, however minute, is to be left undone if the Lord has commanded it. And hence, verse 44 joins, I am holy with not defiling themselves with any of the swarming things. The infinite stretch of his holy authority is seen in an extending from the height of his throne to the very lowest of living things. Holiness in what we call small matters is the surest test of real holiness. Well, that's, that's huge. Holiness in what we call small matters is the surest test of real holiness. That is who we are when no one's watching or when we think no one's watching. Who we are behind closed doors, who we are in the dark of the night, who we are when we're off away from friends and loved ones and families who know us, who we are all alone. Be holy, because I am holy. Now God says it five times in Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy, which should give you a hint as to how holiness is obtained. Be holy for I am holy, he says in verse 44. Be holy for I am holy, he says in verse 45. Skip over to chapter 19, verse 20, if you want to follow this through, or just listen. Leviticus chapter 19, I'm sorry, not 20, 19 verse 2, where the Lord says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He says it, that's the third time. The fourth time he says it, chapter 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then again in chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, 
4, but let's start in verse 22. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and to do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you. See, other people are gonna get spewed out of that land. Why? Unholy. And he says, they did all these things and therefore I have abhorred them. Verse 24, hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you to possess it a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by any animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground for I have separated for you as unclean or which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus, verse 26, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. In all these things, in the context of the dietary law, chapter 11, in the context of honoring this new Israelite family and saying no to idolatry, Leviticus 19, in the context of shunning paganism and mediums and spiritists and the occult and immorality and human sacrifice, in that context, God says in chapter 20, verse 7, be holy for I am holy. And finally, he calls his people to distinguish themselves from the pagan land that he is about to take them into. That a holy person is distinguished from the unholiness of the land in which we live whatever land, land that may be. I, I said this when we came to the very end of our study on Wednesday night, that Jesus made it all really perfectly simple. Matthew 5, verse 48, here you go. If you can get this down, you can just leave this morning. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you've got that, doors are open, see you later. Ah, oh, you're all still here. <laughs> You are to be perfect. That's the standard. Absolutely clean means there isn't even the smallest flake of dirt. Perfection is the standard. Unclean imperfection is the problem. And later on, turning your Bibles now over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Later, Jesus makes a very clear distinction between the clean and the unclean. Matthew chapter 15. So this is our second source of understanding this morning. Matthew 15, verse 10. Matthew 15, 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said, hear and understand. And then he gives a little one verse parable. Matthew 15, verse 11. It's not that which enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but that which proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. So you're thinking, okay, does he mean that if I have some unclean animal to eat and I throw it up, that's, a, that's defiling both ways, right? <laughs> Just a little parable. He uses the common sense of eating. What you take in is not what's gonna defile you. It's what comes out of your mouth. And again, few of us really enjoy when things come out of our mouth. It's supposed to go in, Right? Then the disciples came to him. They said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> do you know that they were upset, Jesus? I can see Jesus going, 
<laughs> you think I didn't know? But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Ooh. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Peter said this, note that. Explain the parable. We don't get it. What you eat isn't what makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth, makes you unclean. He said, are you still understand, lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Wow, this is radical teaching for Jews who have clung to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 and the food laws and the washing laws for so long, suddenly Jesus says, that's not the issue. That never was the issue. What? Yeah, God was giving you a picture. The Father was painting something for you to understand what it means to be clean versus unclean. It's so much bigger than you thought. It's not about holding on to unclean things. It's not about just the eating of unclean things. It's the uncleanliness of the heart. That's the problem. And by the way, Mark, just to make this fun... In the Gospel of Mark, the Spirit surprisingly adds in Mark 7, verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. You know what? I think we can take a guess that that was Peter's understanding of what Jesus said. That Jesus in this moment made all foods clean. Why would you say that? Because we're pretty sure that Mark's Gospel was basically Mark's notes on Peter's teaching in Rome. And if you read through Mark and understand this may very well be the sermons of Peter in Rome and Mark's jotting them all down, then all of a sudden it takes on a very different meaning and it was in Mark's gospel alone that it says, thus he declared all foods clean, Mark 7, 19. So did Peter understand? He's the one who said, Lord, we don't understand the parable. Explain it to us. Jesus explains it and then Peter gets it. I guess everything's clean to eat. Time for a camel burger. Jesus says this, did that mean all foods were suddenly clean from bunnies to blowfish to bats? <laughs> all foods clean? And yes, tender, tasty turkey. You don't have to go to cashroot.com anymore. It's all clean because the animals were never the point. They were never the point. The Lord was using this to paint a picture that man might understand, that woman might understand, that while the, the cash route was healthy for the Jewish people, that's true. It's true. Dietary laws that did protect them over the ages, saving them from disease and plague and pandemic. We, we see that. That's, that's actually played out. But the Lord is conveying and was conveying as far back as Mount Sinai and, and even back pre-flood, the distinction between clean and unclean. 
That which the Lord declares to be clean is what we are called to desire. That which is unclean is what we are called to shun. Feed on that which is clean. Don't partake of that which is unclean. And the picture and the parable extends through the Jewish Torah law and all the way to Jesus saying, this is the deal. And again, thus he declared all foods clean. This is amazing to me because what God did over all this time was teach a singular principle. Listen, it is God who calls things clean. Why is it that certain animals are unclean and certain animals are clean? The point is not the animals. The point is the Lord determines. The point is the Lord is the one who says that's unclean and that's clean. God calls clean. God calls all things that he desires to be clean, clean. And even more than that, God calls things clean even from out of the unclean. From out of the, 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 all these unclean animals suddenly are declared clean because God even takes the unclean things and makes them clean. Now I can see Peter (laughs) trying to work it out. And boy, I hope I don't misrepresent Peter. I really never want to misrepresent God. I don't mind so much misrepresenting Peter if I have to, but but Peter, trying to work it out. Think about that. He's hearing this. Did he just say all foods are... And he heard Jesus say, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. I mean, I would love to just stand off to the side and watch Peter react to the teachings of Jesus. Because he often does, you know? And I see him going, did Jesus just overturn 1,500 years of Jewish dietary laws like he overturned the tables in the temple? What's going on here? Can I really enjoy a nice BLT finally? (laughs) With pork rinds. Is that okay? Can I have some spicy camel curry? What is he saying here? It's going to take more teaching more teaching of the Spirit of God to finally convince Peter that the dietary laws had far greater implications. So turn in your Bibles to the next place, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. A hungry Peter was up on a roof, still not fully comprehending what it was that Jesus taught. Though perhaps he had at this point even preached it, although maybe not yet. But he still wasn't getting it. I know he wasn't getting it because of what happens in Acts chapter 10. He's up on the rooftop of a man named Simon, who is ironically a tanner. It doesn't mean he owns a salon. Simon the tanner dealt with unclean things every single day, animal carcasses. And Peter's hanging out at Simon's house. Peter goes up to the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. And and as that's going on, prior to that, we see in Acts chapter 10, an angel was dispatched to a man named Cornelius up in a place called Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the Mediterranean coast, directly up from from Joppa. So you just head straight down the coast on what they would call the, the, the way of the sea, the Via Maris. So he's up in Caesarea Maritima, and Peter's down in Joppa. And up there in Caesarea, 
is a man named Cornelius who is God-fearing, who recognizes the God of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, but he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile centurion. And he knows that, but he's, he's a man of faith and he trusts and he believes in God and he's been crying out to God and God sends him an angel. A little dispatch, the angel comes to him and says, I want you to send some men to Peter in Joppa. This is where you, gives him an address. This is where you're gonna find him. So Cornelius dispatches his men. So they're on the way down to Joppa at the time that Peter goes up on the roof. Chapter 10, verse nine, we'll pick it up there. It says, on the next day as they, that is this dispatch, were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So it's high noon. And it says in verse 10, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. The only time trance is used in the New Testament, this particular word. And it says that he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there in it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, uh uh-oh, of the earth (laughs) and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, listen, to an observant Jew, even one who realized Jesus was Messiah like Peter did, this vision itself would be highly offensive. Every aspect of the vision Unclean animals. But even think about this. It describes this this four-cornered sheet that if you look at it, I'm not saying this is absolutely certainly what it is, but it certainly appears to be a Jewish talit, prayer shawl, with the four corners of the tzitzit. And if it was, I mean, that's even more offensive. Now you got a Jewish prayer shawl coming down out of heaven with unclean creatures swarming around in it and God saying, hey, go hunting. Have some lunch. What? What kind of trance has he fallen into? Verse 14, Peter rightly says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Peter responding, just like with the parable of Jesus. He didn't get it now. Peter doesn't get it. He sees this fish and I will not do this. After all, what if it's a pop quiz? What if perhaps the Lord is testing me? I don't want to get this wrong. Peter's answer proves, yes, he was a rough Galilean fisherman, but it proves he knew the cash route. It proves he understood kosher law. It shows us that he recognized Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, those two passages that parallel. He knew this stuff and he had never crossed that line. He had always stuck to the kosher menu. It also proves that Peter still didn't comprehend. He didn't fully understand the grace of the cross. Like so many of us, Peter had a tendency to fall back when God was moving forward. God says, come on, let's go do this. And we say, well, I'm more comfortable in my tradition. (laughs) I'm I'm just, the Lord says, I've got this for you to do. I'm just gonna do what I've been doing. Thanks, because that's more comfortable for me. For all the grace that 
Peter had to know at this point in Jesus, he still found comfort in the law. He has to get called out on it. Now, I love Peter. Peter's a tremendous man of God, and yet he struggled like any one of us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said, when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What? Peter, the leader of the, of the church? This is post-resurrection? Paul says, Galatians 2.12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision and the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. That is, he hung out with Gentiles, unclean folk. He ate with them. He was good with them until the Jews from Jerusalem came down. Jewish Christians but the little, probably a little more uptight, traditional Jewish Christians come down and Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. Why? Unclean. They're unclean. Peter didn't have an unclean food problem. He had an unclean fear problem. He feared the reproach of man. Remember what I said before we began, the little freebie I gave you that God, he, he hovers above this stuff. God in his holiness is above our pettiness, which is how he can love all of us even if we don't love each other. He still loves us all because he's above it. And he's calling us up to that kind of an attitude to rise above our petty differences and love each other even if we disagree. That's what he does. And so Peter is struggling with this stuff even in his ministry. Well, back to Joppa, Verse 15 of chapter 10 in the book of Acts, again came a voice to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And <laughs> immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. What an interesting parallel. You got Simon the tanner who works with unclean things, and you got Simon the apostle who doesn't really understand clean and unclean yet. And Peter was reflecting on the vision, verse 19, when the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Did you see it? Did you catch the threes? The threes. The vision appeared to Peter three times. I often need things at least three times before it gets into the center of the sponge. So three times God repeats this to drive the point home for Peter. Three men show up at the gate. The number three just seems to be a transformative number for Peter, as I think it is for all of us. But in Peter's life, he denied Jesus three times. You know the stories. In Peter's life also, in the Bible, we see that he verbally denies God's will three separate times. Matthew 16, verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you after Jesus said he was gonna go get crucified. 
But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let me just say to you, in this season, brothers and sisters in Christ, both here and at home, are you setting your thoughts on the things of God or the things of man? That will distinguish you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And let me lovingly encourage you, set your minds on the things of God and let the things of man go. Jesus, uh, Peter stood opposed to God's will. That's number one. Number two, second time, John 13, verse eight. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. <laughs> Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And then right here, as God says, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. He said, by no means, Lord, which is very strong language in the Greek. I will not do this. Three times we see Peter denying the will of God. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And then Jesus reinstated Peter, didn't he? And remember when he did that, John chapter 21? How did he do it? He reinstated him by three times saying, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus knew Peter needed three times to get it. And like Jesus resurrecting on the third day, Peter now, now starts to wake up. He starts to get it. He comes around the third time around. I just love that because there's something very personal in this, and that is how well Jesus knows Peter. He knows exactly how to get through to this guy. You know what? He knows you that well. Jesus knows how to get through to you, how to get through to me, and he's gonna do what's necessary to get through to us, to get all the way into the heart. And he knows you perfectly, knows how to get you there. Praise God for that. Jesus also knows the value of a clean slate. Look at verse 21. Peter went down to the men and said, behold, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason which you've, for which you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was directed, divinely directed, by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear a message from you. Got a speaking gig for you, Peter. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. It's such a fascinating story and what takes place here. Peter goes down, actually goes up from Joppa, heads up to Caesarea, comes to the house of Cornelius. We see the story, he, he shows up, Peter begins to speak, and in verse 28 he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. Excuse me? <laughs> Peter, I recall this a little differently. By no means, Lord, he said. You know what's happening here? Not only is the Lord desiring to make Cornelius clean, he's also teaching Peter what it means. So he's working both angles, both sides of the equation. He's working on the conversion of a Gentile and the transformation of a believer. Brothers and sisters, let's not get cocky. 
I've come to faith in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and he's still doing a transformative work in me. And he's still doing a transformative work in you. And while you may be saved, yet you are still being made clean. I mean, it's so, it's so amazing. There's a double thing going on here. We are instantly clean, instantly perfect by the blood of Jesus. And yet then he takes this little lump and begins to form us and transform us to look as clean as he has called us by the blood of Christ. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? Already clean in Jesus and being made clean in our actions and our thoughts and our behavior, transforming us. That's what he's doing with Peter. That's why I love Peter's life and story so much is because he's such an example of one who is transformed throughout his life. Saved and then transformed. And so God is working on all of us in that same way. Read on verse 30. Cornelius says, four days ago this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. And you know the story. He said, have him come on up. So Cornelius sent the delegation. They get Peter. They come back up. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. He's still not quite getting it, Peter, but you're on your way. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. Jesus of Nazareth, verse 38. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem and they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people. Hold on, Peter. There's an implication here, and I'm reading into it. So I'm just telling you right now. I'm reading into the text a little bit. But he ordered us to preach to the people. What people is Peter talking about? The people. I think Peter's still thinking the Jews. He ordered us to preach to the people. Well, Acts chapter 1 tells us otherwise. He ordered them to preach to the people in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, all people, all people. Well, he said to solemnly testify that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sin. You know what Peter's doing here? He's preaching a Jewish sermon to a room full of Gentiles. All the prophets say this. Well, do all the Gentiles know the Jewish prophets? He said, preach to the people. Which people? The Jewish people. Peter is, he's approaching this as a Jew to Jews, but he's talking to Gentiles. He's not, he's not shifting to make it more relevant for the Gentiles. And it just reminded me looking at this, sometimes our application is simply not to the right audience. But you know what? As long as Jesus is at the center of it, the word gets through. It really doesn't depend on my application. 
The gospel doesn't depend on me and my capability to make it relevant to a certain audience. It is God's word. So it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew trying to speak to Jews even though they're Gentiles. It doesn't matter if I'm a Gentile talking to Jews or anybody else. It doesn't matter. What matters is am I preaching Jesus? And Peter is preaching Jesus. Verse 44, while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Circumcised believers? Jews. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter said, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few more days. It's Gentile Pentecost. Now the Gentiles get it. And note this, by the way, I just got to point this out, that they're speaking in tongues and exalting God, and every time we see an example of someone speaking in tongues in the Bible, they're worshiping. To speak in tongues is to worship. That's what speaking in tongues is about. That's, those are the examples we're given. You might say, well, I thought speaking in tongues was prophesying, which you read in another place. No, they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Those are two different things. And the point I'm simply making is sometimes so much is made out of speaking in tongues when speaking in tongues truly is supposed to be speaking in worship to God. The tongues are worship. That is praise. And that's what was happening at the Jewish Pentecost, if you will. Pentecost in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1. What were they doing? They were speaking in tongues. What were they saying? Praise and worship. And all those gathered around heard them praising God and speaking words of praise and worship. This is Gentile Pentecost. Same thing is happening now in Caesarea that had taken place in Jerusalem. And by the way, Caesarea ultimately would become a Christian enclave. It would become kind of the Christian Jerusalem for a long time. A place where the church really exploded and grew out from Gentile territory. And there they are praising God and worshiping. You might say, well, but it's backwards here. Why does God baptize them in the Holy Spirit before they get baptized in water? To prove beyond all doubt, God calls things clean. God makes clean. To prove to Peter as well as to Cornelius himself what God has cleansed, no longer call unholy, God makes clean. And if he can declare the unclean animals clean, he can make the unclean person clean which is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. And Peter, I can tell you with all assurance, finally got it. He got it. Maybe not right away, maybe not fully that day, although his eyes were wide open at Cornelius' house. But turn now to 1 Peter, first letter of Peter in your Bibles, and listen to what the apostle writes. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 14, 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy Leviticus 11, verse 44, 45, chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 7, chapter 20, verse 26. 
For if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, in other words, pure and clean. Be holy for I am holy. God makes clean. God makes holy. So what do I do? Just be holy. Do holy things. Act in clean ways. Having been washed by the blood of Jesus and made pure and clean, now we act clean. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see what what Peter got? Go back to Leviticus 11 one more time. Leviticus 11:44 I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy and verse 45 I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Stop right there. The picture is clear. I brought you up. Egypt is a picture from the uh, of the world. I brought you up from the world. I cleansed you. I made you holy, unlike the world. I called you out of the world. Therefore, act that way. Therefore, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's the point. He couches the whole thing in himself. You be holy because I am holy. Okay, you're holy, so I should be like you. Is that what you're saying? No. It's all about him. You be holy because I am holy. It's not just a command. So it's an invitation? No. No, it's not just an invitation. It is our provision for holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. And Jesus said in John 17, 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you have loved them. Don't miss with Jesus what he said. I in them, the pure and perfect holy one in me, be holy because I am holy. And my holiness is his holiness in me extending out, his purity extending out in my life. His righteousness makes me righteous. His goodness makes me good. His love makes me loving. His presence in me makes it possible for me to be holy and clean. It's all his work. God makes clean. God makes holy. I am saying this in part to the Christian who still doesn't understand that you have been made clean. To the Christian who still doesn't comprehend that if the spirit of God dwells within you, he has made you clean. And your righteousness is righteousness because he's there. Because as you may have heard, God looks at you and sees Jesus. And so I'm holy, I'm clean because he's clean. I'm holy because he is holy. You want a happy Thanksgiving? I'm kind of assuming you do. Make it a clean one. Let it be a clean Thanksgiving. Let's make a clean break from all the sin and rebellion and the striving and the bitterness and the angst and the politics infecting the church. Let's get clean. 
through his presence within. I truly believe this, and I've been challenged on it in my own thinking, in my own prayer, that November 2020 is the best year in history for Thanksgiving. This is the time to be thankful, to celebrate the holiness of a God who makes clean. And while you eat this week, would you consider this? Paul said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and these things come of a holy life. So whether or not you clean your plate this week, I'm not concerned. It is the blood of Christ that fully makes clean. Are you clean in Jesus? You are if the perfect, clean Jesus is in you. Lord, we pray this morning for that holiness that comes of you, that can only come of you. To accept, first of all, Lord, if, if we're your people, your followers, we're Christians, to accept that we have been made clean and we are clean because of your very presence within us. And then, Lord, to allow your presence to work in us, to allow your cleanness to make us clean, to transform us into a people who are clean in our behavior, clean in our thinking, clean in our spirits. And Lord, for the for the person who feels unclean, for the one who has never handed their heart over to you, I pray this morning, Lord, that lost may be found, blind may receive their sight, that the deaf may hear, that the dumb may, may speak out praise and worship, that the lame would walk, that the diseased would be healed, Father, of the sin that is in this world of the sin that is made unclean. If that's you this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never been made clean by his blood, I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I, I am constrained by my sin. I wanna be set free. So Jesus, this morning, I declare you to be the Lord and my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross and that you poured out your perfect blood so that I could be washed clean. I believe you rose from the dead, forever destroying death's power of uncleanness. And I ask you to walk with me and pour your spirit into me. Transform me, Lord. Make me clean. In Jesus' name, amen.